We're going to be speaking about living the unflourishing life, which sounds deeply encouraging. I hope that it is, but we've been in a series, if you've been with us, I think we're on week seven now or week eight, somewhere around there, where we've been talking about what is a flourishing life? What is a a life that's meant to thrive look like, and it can sound like quite a modern kind of Facebooky guru kind of word, you know, the flourishing life, but actually it's a biblical word. It's a word that the Bible speaks about again and again that God designed us. He designed paths for us to walk in so that we would flourish. But what happens, and some of you are sitting here this morning in some area or another, and even you've been here for the whole series, and you've been listening to you know, flourishing spiritually, flourishing physically, flourishing emotionally, flourishing mentally. We're even going to speak about flourishing financially. We've spoken about flourishing in your workplace. And you're kind of going, I am not. What then? What about if you feel like you're the unflourishing one, the one who's not measuring up, the one who's dropping the ball? You, you're sinning again and again in the same ways, and you go around this mountain, and it's like, oh, I know that rock, I know that tree, I was here last, last week, it's very familiar, I've gone around the same sin again and again and again. What do we do when that's how we feel? Well, th- there's one thing we could do, and that's that we can apply cheap grace. Cheap grace is where I say to you, no, 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 you really are flourishing, even if you aren't. But you, but you really are, right? That's not what I want to do today. I really don't want to do that. It, it might be that you really aren't flourishing. This is going to be a deeply encouraging message, people. <laughs> it might be that you aren't. It might be, this is even a little more scary, that God himself is working against your flourishing. God is stopping you from flourishing. And it might be that maybe we just have some measures that are really wrong around flourishing. And we've been speaking about that throughout our series. But that's, that's kind of a taster of what I want to explore today. That those kind of ideas, we, we're going to think about those things. And as we do, I'm praying that God, through his Holy Spirit, would genuinely, deeply encourage our hearts. I want to pray for us. Father, this morning we come and we place our hearts before you needing encouragement. We feel sometimes like a ship that's traveled many years through an ocean and on the way we've picked up so many barnacles that it just feels like we're chugging along and life is not what we hoped or dreamed or thought it would be and we feel discouraged, we feel despair. Sometimes we just feel so tired of ourselves and our own sin. And we need you. And we ask you to come and speak to us out of your word this morning. Lord, we ask you to help us to be people who see what you want us to do and who then do it. Who have hearts that are willing, even when we struggle, but they're still willing to be obedient to you. Father, I ask you this morning that you would remind us how you see us, Lord, where we measure ourselves against the world and come up short on so many fronts, where our mothers or fathers or friends or peers have spoken against us or spoken words to us that affirm that we are not enough, that we don't measure up, that you will always be, that you never were. I should have done this myself if I wanted it done properly. All these things, Father, we thank you that we come to you and that you speak new words over our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. So I'm going to just do three quick points around 
why you might not be flourishing. These are like legitimate things, why you might not be flourishing. The first one is this. You don't know or follow Jesus Christ. This is where we start. Maybe, maybe that's even why you're here today. Maybe you're here because you're interested in Christianity, because it doesn't feel like your life is flourishing. Maybe you've, you're desperate, and that's why you're here. Maybe you actually hate Christianity, and you've got so desperate that you're like at the point where you're just going like, what else do I try? Let me give this a try because I don't know where else to go. Right? That might describe some people sitting here this morning. Jesus himself in one of the Gospels, and if you are exploring faith. You may have no idea what I'm talking about. The Gospels are what Jesus' disciples wrote about him, about his life. So after Jesus died, these men who had followed him around wrote stories and telling what Jesus had said. And they said that Jesus said this in John 10 verse 10. He says, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. That doesn't sound very good doesn't sound like I want that happening in my life, but sometimes it does feel like that's happening in my life, that there's more stealing and destroying and killing. Jesus says, no, that's not what I've come for. I've come that they may have life and have it to the full. What a beautiful phrase, have life to the full. And while stealing and killing and all of that sounds terrible, having life to the full sounds wonderful. That's, like, uh, that's the kind of flourishing I'm... Um, I'm wanting. But the point Jesus is making is that you don't have this full life without Him. And that's the point I'm just starting us off on this morning. I, I don't want you to, to feel like I'm not flourishing and no one has said to you, actually, if you don't have Christ in your life, you will not flourish. That's the point. This is Blaise Pascal, the mathematician from the 1600s who was a philosopher and Christian, says this, there's a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of every man or woman which cannot be satisfied by any created thing, but only by God the Creator made known through Jesus Christ. Friends, Jesus doesn't just give us an example to follow. He does, he does do that, but it's not just an example. There's not just one of a few options. You could do this, you could do this. Jesus says, I am the way. I am the truth. Not I'm going to show you another path that you can... No, Jesus himself is the way that we come to the Father. So, Paul in Ephesians chapter 2. You know, Paul is the apostle in the New Testament again. If you don't know who that is... He says something quite depressing, really. He says, if you don't know Jesus, this is what you are. And he paints a picture in Ephesians chapter 2. And I'm going to read it for us. And later on, we're going to, we're going to read the next part of Ephesians 2, which says what you are when you do come to Christ. So it starts off with this, and it'll go somewhere else later on. It says, as for you talking to people who are now in the church of Ephesians, who are now Christians, but he's talking about their former life, and he's saying, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the rulers of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. So if you read that, and you can read it and read it with Christian eyes and just kind of read, 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 read. But actually, it's saying some pretty offensive stuff 
It's saying you were dead. It's saying you were disobedient. And it's saying you were deserving of any wrath that God was going to pour out on you. That's on you. You were deserving of that wrath. That's what that text is saying. Right? Now, I'm not, if you're here and you don't know Jesus, I really don't want to lose you right in the beginning of my sermon. I'm not trying to offend you. I just need to lay a platform that Scripture says that without Christ, we cannot flourish. And this is my first contention, that if we think we can truly flourish, but we don't truly know or follow Jesus Christ, we cannot flourish. The second thing I want to say is, why wouldn't you flourish? Why wouldn't you be flourishing? Well, the second thing is a little bit, a little bit closer to home for some of us. Well, because I live in disobedience. If we live in disobedience, God will not allow us to flourish. And we're going to get to God's motive for that in a moment. James, who was Jesus' brother, writes a beautiful book. I actually really love this book, the book of James. And he writes in chapter 4, and he says, just this short little thing, if anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. So we try so hard to avoid the things we know are bad. James kind of goes, hang on, it's even a bit beyond that. Even if you know what you should do and you don't do it, you're sinning. So let's think about that a little bit. Some, some this morning don't know Jesus, as we spoke about in point one, but some of you do know Jesus, but you're very reluctant to obey Jesus. You don't much like what God's Word tells you to do. Has anyone ever felt like that? I have. Anyone ever read a part of God's Word and just quickly closed it? <laughs> wish you didn't know that. Went to a conference and someone taught something or you heard a preacher preach something and you thought like, oh, I wish I could just kind of go back in time and rather go to the beach because I did not want to know that. Now I feel like I know it. I'm responsible for it. I've had that feeling. If you read God's Word, sometimes you can go, this seems really outdated. This seems really restrictive. Anyone ever feel like God's trying to stop my fun? I just want to work and be rich and God comes with these other ideas and it's irritating that he wants to speak to me about my finance because actually it's just a private matter. What's it got to do with you church and especially, no, with you God and especially with you church, <laughs> right? Just me or anyone else? Often I've struggled with the fact that it doesn't make sense. I read something and I look at it with my with my Paul Hotson 2023 glasses on, and I'm like, this doesn't compute. It does not add up to what my culture is telling me adds up to, in this case, flourishing, happiness. You know, this and this and this equals happiness. It's obvious. Look at Instagram, right? And this and this and this in God's Word does not equal the same place, and that is difficult. And we've spent much time in other sermons preaching about why we cannot demand that we understand all things. It's not, the, even the role of the Bible is not my textbook so that I would understand everything or understand science and go back to Genesis and be like, this is exactly what, you know, I wish the scientists would read this. It's not written so that we would have the right science textbook, the right answer for, anyway. I'm not going to wax lyrical on that. You get the point. 
Whatever your reason, friend, if you, if we do not walk in the path that God has laid out for us, we will not flourish. If we want to follow our own sexual desires and we want to live with one another before we get married because we think God's word is archaic, because we think it's redundant, whatever it might be, we reject what God says because we put ourselves as God and say, actually, I know what I really need. I know what I really desire. We will not flourish. This is the truth of God's word. We cannot work, walk both in disobedience and flourish. And here's a little hard part on the end of this as well. Even if that disobedience is not willful. This is why we study while we read God's word. You can't just keep yourself in a place of ignorance and go, I didn't know. We still are studying God's word to say, God, show it all to me. Teach me all of your ways. Guys, this is not just about bad sins. This is not just about avoiding whatever it is that the church or your family or whoever is loud in your world, moralistic faith wants to say, avoid these things. It's also about faith. Do you know that you can sin when God is calling you to do something? Maybe he's been speaking to you about it for years and you will not do that thing. That is sin. You will not flourish. Where God is calling you to do something and you're afraid, I want to say to you, even Jesus was afraid. Not in a sinful way, but in the garden where Jesus says, Lord, says to his Father, is there another way? Is there some other way you can do this? Jesus was sweating drops of blood. A high, high, I've never been that stressed. No matter how hard your week was, no matter how stressed you tell me you are, I've never seen any of you sweat blood. Jesus was sweating blood from the anxiety that he carried. He was afraid of what God had put out in front of him. And yet scripture says that for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and now sits at the right hand of the Father. It, it, maybe you look on something that God is asking you to do. I've had this many times in my life, and I say it doesn't look very wise, God. <laughs> and even when I'm doing it, I get the irony. I get that it's God and it's me, but it feels so real that this is not wise. Why would I do that thing, God? Maybe it's a really bad career move. If I do this, this is the trajectory I go on versus that ladder that I'm trying to climb. Maybe it just hurts my pride. Maybe it's because I just downright don't want to do it. Just straight up three-year-old rebellion in my heart. Right, have some kids, you'll understand. I've learned a lot by watching my toddlers about me. <laughs> you will not flourish. Now let me just pour right on this point. I just want to pause and I want to just pour a little bit of grace into the room right here. We're going to talk about it again just now. But there's a huge difference between disobedience and maturity. All right, as we are being sanctified, as God is growing us in Him, don't get them confused. So let me give you a little example. One of my kids comes into your house. He's two years old. He takes your kid's toy, and off we go home. And later on at home, we discover that little Johnny has a dinosaur tucked in the bottom of the chair or in his cot to wherever he put the thing that he stole. Right? We don't brand him a thief. We don't phone the cops. All right? My 35-year-old brother comes with me to your house and he starts helping himself to some stuff and taking it home to his cot. We phone the cops. Why do we do that? 
because there's a maturity difference. So sometimes we've got to be just thoughtful. I just want to pour some grace on this, that I don't want you to be looking at things that are difficult, that God is busy sanctifying, sin that we're busy working on our lives and, and confusing it with maturity and disobedience. But we must stop and ask the question, am I not flourishing simply because I go, God, I don't want to. You with me? The third thing, and this is the last one, around kind of like legitimate things that we need to look at and just say, are there good reasons why God is not allowing my life to flourish? Is that I am unfaithful with what I already have in my hands. So many times in my lives, I, my lives, I do not believe in reincarnation. Um, I remember saying to God, like, I, I want this thing. Like, I want my ministry to be like this. So I want to be able to do this or whatever it is. And I just feel like God's Spirit saying to me, what's in your hand and what have you done with it? It's wonderful to think about when I was in the business world, franchising my business and going global before I'd even grown anything on the ground that was worth reproducing. And just God saying to me, I remember being on a plane going to Joburg to go and check out a new product and thinking this was going to blow open my business world because, you know, anyway. Um, and I remember being on that plane and God just saying, Paul, you're not being faithful with what I've already given you. The business I've already given you. You're not showing faithfulness in that area. Friends, if we are not faithful, Scripture teaches us extremely clearly that to the one who is faithful with a teeny tiny bit, God gives more. And then God gives more. And then God gives more. But to the one who is unfaithful, Scripture says, even what they have will be taken from them. This is a vital thing for us to learn. I'm not going to spend any um, amount of time on this, you, but I do want us to stop and to Pause and consider if this is a barrier to our flourishing. Let me say it like this. You might not know all of Scripture. You really might not. You might be miles away. Maybe you've just started reading the Bible. You've got no idea. Let me ask you, what do you know? What do you know? And what are you doing with that? That's the issue of faithfulness right there. What do we know and what do we do with that. You might not have faith yet to completely change your career, to walk in and put your resignation down and say, I'm going to do this. God is calling me to this great faith venture. You might not be able to do that yet, but you might be able to sit in a boardroom and say, God, give me faith to say what I need to say because what's being asked of me here is disintegrous and I need to have integrity. That might be the faith that you need. It might be the faith to fill in your tax form properly and to say, God, I trust you, not me, to care for me financially. So I'm not going to steal from any government or no matter how I may think they do or don't use my money wisely, right? These are faithfulness issues. And what happens is that as you are faithful in those small little boardroom moments, God grows your faith and you get muscled and you get muscled and you get muscled until one day you are able to take great leaps of faith, not because you're some super faith person, because you have been faithful in thousands and thousands of little small moments. Everyone, friend, that you see doing significant things for God, if you, if you go and spend some time with that person, you will find a track record of little, little things that they have faithfully been doing first. So in all those points above, I don't follow Jesus Christ, I don't want to obey Him, or I am not faithful, I just want to quickly ask the motive question. What is God's motive from stopping you from flourishing when you don't do those things? Is he, is he punitive? Is he a headmaster? Is he trying to stop your fun? Is he trying to restrict you? Friends, it might surprise you when, you when I say this, but 
This is a profound display of the love of God. It's a profound display of God's love. If God loved you and yet let you do whatever you wanted to and still caused you to flourish, it would be neglect. God loves you so much that He stops us. God actively works against us and stops us from flourishing so that we realize and turn back to God. Think about another, I've got lots of of children analogies, but think about a, a parent and a stove and a child and a child going towards a, a stove that is hot and the child really wants to touch the stove and the child is convinced that touching the stove will lead to flourishing. It will be a good thing. It's an adventurous thing and the child is reaching out to touch the stove. What prompts the father or the mother to grab that child's hand and say no or heaven forbid give them a little smack what prompts that some punitive it's love it's love that says that is not going to make you flourish not touching the stove will make you flourish so because i love you i'm going to stop you Does that make sense okay let's carry on so those are the three things that are legitimate barriers to flourishing and now i want to talk about some that i think many of you are feeling Many of you are feeling these next ones. And I just want to put some skin on these bones. What about if you do follow Christ? What about if you really are trying to be obedient? What about if you do feel that you are being faithful with the small things that God has giving you, given to you? Obviously, all of us, guys, we're doing this in part, right? All of us, we're trying to be obedient, also recognizing that we're not always that obedient. But there's, there's a heart willingness. What if you are the person who is feeling like, God, I am willing, I want to do these things. I, I doubt, but I want to have faith. Give me faith, God. What if you still feel like you're unflourishing, still feel like you don't measure up? While I started off by saying I don't want to pour cheap grace on you and say, well, no, 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 you really are flourishing, I really do want to pour some biblical grace on you this morning because I think there's some common wisdom and some biblical stuff that is going to be deeply encouraging for us. Number one, what happens when God delays? In other words, I'm discouraged. Is this coming up? I'm discouraged because I thought it would happen faster. Does anyone feel like this about your life with Jesus? No one at all? I've got one or two nods. I feel like this. I thought by 40, 41 years old, man, I had visions of where I would be with Jesus and it was a lot further down the line. I had visions of my impatience. That's, one, that's my biggest, one of my biggest struggles. I thought I'd be so much more patient, have the patience of Job, you know? Maybe, this is one of my favorite verses because it just resonates so deeply in my own heart. The Apostle Paul writes in Romans chapter 7, so he says, I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's word or God's law. But I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. Does anyone else feel this conflict that the Apostle Paul is writing about? I really do want to serve God, but I feel this sin and it's like, there's like this fight going on inside of me. And then he says, he describes it just so beautifully, what a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? feel the emotion it says thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord so then 
I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but it is my sinful, but in my sinful nature a slave to the law of sin. Why am I not changing faster? Friends, you know the reason that that Romans text encourages me so much is when I think about the life of the Apostle Paul, he has seen Jesus in the flesh. This guy, right? You don't know who he is. Guy writing Romans chapter 7 has seen Jesus in a vision in front of him, talking with him in the flesh. Do you know that Paul says, I did not receive my revelation from being taught in a church or being taught by the apostles. I went out into the desert somewhere. We're not quite sure what happened, but God himself came and taught me. Like the things that he was preaching, he had to go and check later on with the Jerusalem council because God had taught it to him and he wanted to just make sure. <laughs> right? This is the apostle Paul. His, he has his experiences which he says, I'm not even sure if I was in the third heaven or if I was in my body or if I was out of my body, but I was somewhere else and it wasn't earth. And God was saying these things to me. This is the guy who could, he studied under, I think it was Gamaliel, one of, the greatest, one of the greatest teachers of that time, who could probably recite nearly all of the Old Testament verbatim. That's how much he knew his scripture. And he says, wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of death? Friends, if that doesn't give you courage, you're dead. <laughs> Honestly, this, this, this gives me so much courage that this guy is writing Romans chapter 7. Ecclesiastes, if ever you really are struggling with depression, is not a good book to read. <laughs> but there is a really beautiful verse in, in chapter 3, verse 11. It says, it says, He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the human heart, yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. And Solomon is kind of holding up this. I don't really understand all of it, but man, I can see that God makes everything beautiful in its time. And this is my contention to you this morning. If you, are, if you are struggling here, if you're struggling and looking at your life and saying, I thought I'd be so much further down the line, it takes time. We have a patient God Friends, I want to encourage you, don't buy into drive-through theology. There's no such thing. There's no McDonald's in God's Word. You don't drive past, grab your cheap burger, and, and carry on. It takes time. It takes time. When your life looks like a mess, take heart that God has not finished with it yet. Keep pressing into Him, trusting that He will make it beautiful in His time. Eugene Peterson, the famous author who unfortunately passed away a few years ago, had a beautiful little phrase. He spoke about a long obedience in the same direction. He said, Christianity is a long obedience in the same direction. We keep doing the same things in the same direction for a long, long time. That's what it is. The second thing is a culture of hidden lives. You might be discouraged because you feel like everyone else is ahead of me. Everyone else is like, looks like they're flying. See, this, link, this links into the point I've been speaking about above, like when God delays, but it's a separate thing because sin is shameful, and so my default is to hide it. 
Adam and Eve in the garden, right? What happens? They sin. What do they do? They start sowing fig leaves because they need to hide themselves. It produces shame in our hearts. Timothy Keller says, he's a, he's a preacher in New York, an amazing thinker. He says the gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe, yet at the same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. If you are struggling to flourish or to feel like you're not flourishing in an area of life and being discouraged, friends, I want to ask you, it might be that you're looking at everyone else around you and comparing yourself. And I want to tell you that you are with fellow strugglers whether they will admit it or not. I will admit it. I do regularly from the pulpit stand up and say, this is where I am struggling. I am a fellow struggler with you. I am sinning like you. This is why we work so hard in this church to produce a culture that enables us to be honest, that enables us to truly believe that it's okay not to be okay, but that God also wants to move us on. I reject the culture of this is just me, you just have to accept me, accept me, this is who I am. I reject that culture, not because of that, but I, I, I accept it in the sense of this is who you are, but God does not leave us there. This is who I am right now, please accept me, please love me, it's okay not to be okay. But God is saying, but I take you on. We're not just going to leave you there for the next 50 years, right? Friends, I want this community to be a community where we can sin and anticipate grace, anticipate restoration, anticipate that we're not disqualified, anticipate that redemption and someone coming and saying, come on, get back on the horse is what we're looking for rather than someone standing and judging. That's what this means. This means that we mess up and when, when I mess up, but we, can, we can hope for not just one more chance, but many more chances. Many, many, many more chances. And so my little encouragement in this point is please stop hiding it. I, I don't think we hide it because of anything other than shame, but when we realize that hiding our sin is a crushing blow to those around us, it changes the picture because we look on someone else's life and go, I can never tell what's going on in my life. It's discouraging, right? This is why James, again, the book of James, he says, confess your sins one to another. Why do you think that's so important? I think it's for our encouragement. I think it's because I hear Nathan telling me about all the terrible things he's done this week <laughs> and go, thank you, Jesus. I'm not alone. Ollie told me, can I say this? You have no idea what I'm going to say, but Ollie told me yesterday I was just passing through my house and he said, listen, I said, I'm preaching on unflourishing. He said, you should have just did a camera, follow me for the last two days. You would have had a great picture. Oh, right? This, is, this breathes courage into us. Clive coming and speaking about his divorce in, test, in the testimony time was powerful. Crystal coming and sharing about the life. Crystal, you look so put together. When I look in on your life, it just looks so perfect. And to hear you coming and, and standing here and speaking, weeping, and speaking with vulnerability in your heart, it moves me. Sharon, last week, preaching so beautifully on emotions and finishing off by sharing about her own emotional journey and how God has led her to the depths and brought her back again, it moves us because we can look over at people who look like they are doing so well 
And some of you are sitting here this morning, you're going through our series and you're going, I don't measure up, I don't measure up, I don't measure up. And it's simply because you're looking over the fence and we haven't been honest enough or we we don't have this mechanism in our culture that goes, "Uh oh, we're all struggling and I just want to breathe grace on you in the name of the Spirit this morning. Grace, Lord Jesus, upon your people. The third thing, and I'm not that far away, is we use the wrong tape measure. I love carpentry. My boy and I were doing some yesterday making swords from Dune, if you know the movie or the book, making Dune swords. And I love tape measures, but one of the things I've learned over the years is that you measure twice at least before you cut, sometimes three times, because if you don't get your measure right, your whole project can be ruined. And I do not like another trip to Builder's Warehouse or somewhere to go and bind it, buy a new piece of timber but it's discouragement because I can't see myself the way God sees me. There's actually there's more to it than that. There's, there's two key sides to this, right? The first key side is more obvious, that we drink in, we've spoken about this loads, we drink in the cultural definition of flourishing. We can't help it. Everywhere you look, every advertising campaign, every church service even, we drink in what the culture says is flourishing. We look at wealth. We look at security. We look at retirement. We look at body types. We look at beauty, what the world holds up as beauty. We look at lifestyle, travel the world, whatever it may be. And we take a measuring tape, and I measure myself, and I go very quickly, right? It doesn't take a lot to measure yourself against these things and go, oh, oh, I don't measure up. If you do feel that you do, good for you. <laughs> For me, I kind of go, I'm definitely not measuring up. The, the cool thing is, the Bible speaks about this a lot. I'm not going to read it now, but I'm going to encourage you to go and read Psalm 37. It's a really good psalm. Go and read Psalm 37 in your own time. But the way that the Bible speaks about this is often in the form of questioning God. So basically, you'll find these authors again and again saying, God, how come I'm over here trying so hard to be righteous, going to church every Sunday, I even tithe, but my life looks like this. And when I look over the fence at my neighbor, he's, he blasphemes your name. He doesn't even try to live his life anything like a, like a Christ follower. It's, it's full of sin. But he's driving the Ferrari. It looks like his life is flourishing. Right? Psalm 37 will help you so much. There's lots of, lots of places, but that one speaks about, like, God, why do the unrighteous flourish? But God, in the end, in time, this is what we see. And in time, this is what we see. And these measures that we hold up. So that's, that's the one side that we're holding up against the culture and going, I don't measure up. The other side is that we look at God and don't know how God measures us. Identity. We don't know what God thinks of us. And so I want to read the other side of that Ephesians 2. I read you the offensive, you're dead, you're disobedient. You know, what was the third one? Uh, you deserve wrath. That was the third part of Ephesians 2. The other side of this is, is that I forget how God truly sees me. Earlier on, we read that frightening text. You were dead, disobedient, deserving wrath. Now, listen to how it carries on. But 
But that's who you were if you don't follow Jesus. Friends, without any trying to offend you, if you don't follow Jesus today, that is who you still are. Dead, disobedient, deserving of wrath, right? But the story, thank God, doesn't end there. And there's grace for you because everyone in this room who does follow Jesus was there. Every one of us was there. But it carries on and says, but God, because of his great love for us, for me, for you, God, who is rich in mercy, that means getting what you don't deserve, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ. Listen to this. If you're struggling with feeling discouraged that you don't measure up, listen to how God sees you. God raised us up with Christ and seated us with Him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Paul's not even talking about one day. He's saying now, this is how God sees you. Raised and seated in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. So what Paul is saying is look at how God has changed us, Ephesians, 2,000 years ago. Then he's saying, and part of why God did this is that we would be an example, a shining out of the immeasurable greatness of God for the years to come. 2,000 and something years later, we're looking and going, this morning, how encouraging is this? This is how God sees us. And the lives of Paul and those Ephesian believers whose names we don't even know are shining out this immeasurable 2,000-year-long story of the goodness and the grace of Jesus Christ. That's encouraging. We can take great courage that God uses a different measuring tape, both in how he defines flourishing in the first place. It's not like the culture, but also in how he measures us, how he sees me. The fourth and final point I want to make is it's all about me. Discouraged because I forget who's really doing the work. It's very easy to forget that God is the one at work saving me. It's very easy to begin, this is like with Galatians, where Paul says, tell me one thing, did you begin in faith? Isn't that where you started? Now, who cut in on you? What changed? Why did you? So we, we often come to Christ, and it's this moment of realization of our sin, a moment of realization of, of how God sees us and how he wants to see us, and there's this deep like, revelation in our hearts, and we go, I'm all yours, I'm so sorry, and then like the next day, we start going, right, now let me get my house in order. Let me now prove to God that what he did in that moment was, I want to show him that I'm worthy of that moment. Does that make sense? And so we start these religious works, and God has got good works for us, and we are supposed to change, but we're never supposed to change in order to prove to God that actually we were okay. If you are not a Christ follower, but you do really want to be right with God, and you're doing that by trying to show God that you can do it, that you're doing it by good works and helping grannies across the street or giving to charities, or you're, you're trying harder and you're holding on with white knuckles. Like if you ever tried religion, friends, it's a white knuckle game. It's an adventure sport, religion. 
Because you've got to hold on for dear life while you feel you, your, your mind, your, your heart is telling you that you're plummeting to the great depths like of a bungee jump off a bridge, but your mind is telling you that somehow you're earning your way to God. Right? It's an adventure sport. I've, I've got good news for you if that's you. If you're struggling and trying so hard but feel like you can't, but sometimes you feel like you can, I've got some great news for you this morning. Stop trying. Stop trying. You, you, you will never be able to reach up to God's standard. Now you say, oh, you've got your measuring tape up. You're measuring me. Yes, I am. You will never be able to measure up to God's standards. You will never be able to, with all your religious observations, you will never be able to, to get up to the level that God requires. And you might think, well, some kind of preacher this guy is, some kind of encourager he is. You know, <laughs> But it's true. When you think about it, it's incredibly encouraging that when Jesus hangs out with sinners and with people who are wicked and that the, the Pharisees and all the religious people go to his disciples, how come Jesus is hanging out with them? Why does he spend his time with them? Why is he going to the nightclubs? Why is he going to the prostitutes? Why is he letting that woman touch him? If he knew who she was, if he knew what she had done, this prostitute, this woman, he would never let her wash his feet. This is what the people are saying. And, and, and something in our hearts goes, rightly so. Because we've got religious things growing in us. But when Jesus sees that, he, you know what he says? He says, you know what, guys? It's not, it's not the healthy. It's not the healthy you need to go to the doctor. You ever seen someone go to the doctor and pay 500 rand or 1,000 rand or whatever it is and just say, I just came to tell you how great I'm doing. So I want to have a chat. Nothing's wrong. Everything's doing well. That's not when you go to the doctor. You go to the doctor when something's wrong. Right? Especially if you're trying to get off work and you need like three days sickness. Oh, I'm terrible. Jesus says, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. And he says, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous. I have come to call sinners. And so if that's where you find yourself this morning, you're tempted to say, let me just get this right. Let me just get my addiction under control. Then I can come to Jesus. When I haven't watched pornography for three weeks, then I can come to Jesus or this sin or that sin or whatever it may be. And Jesus is looking at you and going, you're perfect, perfectly positioned right where you are. I came for the sick. I came for you right where you are. The message of the gospel is literally that in the, in, right in the worst moments of your life, in, in the moments of your greatest shame, if you think about that moment that you were like, if this ever got out, that moment, that terrible, terrible moment, the moments you most want to keep hidden, it's right in that moment that you are best positioned for the grace and the love of Jesus where he comes and says, you're exactly who I came for. Exactly this sin, exactly this scenario. Hey, Jesus, here's an adulterous woman. The Bible says we're supposed to stone her. And Jesus goes, if you haven't sinned, why don't you pick up a stone and throw it? Embarrassed, the Pharisees have to peel off one by one and disappear, knowing their own hearts condemn them. And then Jesus, the only one, think about this, the only one who could legitimately have picked up a stone and thrown it at her, says, woman, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. It's powerful. This is the gospel. Romans 5 says it like this. This is the last scripture we're going to read. When we were utterly helpless. Just think about that. When I was utterly helpless. Christ came at just the right time. <laughs> and died for us sinners. Now, most people would not be willing to die for an upright person. 
though someone might perhaps be willing to die for a, a person who is especially good. But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners, before you got it together. That's where Christ came. Friends, I'm going to end off with something that sounds a little bit like heresy. I want to just encourage us through the life of Jesus, and I called it Jesus the unflourishing Messiah. That's why it sounds like heresy. The unflourishing Messiah. I want you to look at the life of Jesus with a new lens. I want you to look at the life of Jesus through everybody who was around him as he, were, as he walked on planet Earth. And I want you to think about how every single one of those people, nearly, in almost every scenario in the Gospels describe of Jesus' life, there were people on the sideline looking in and going, he is not flourishing. Think about it. The Jews thought that there was a conqueror coming, a king who would overthrow the Romans. It's well documented. It's documented all over the theologians, all the papers. You can, you can figure it out. The Jews believed that Jesus was coming as a conqueror to overthrow the terrible Romans. He's going to beat the, put in your worst party in South Africa, right? Jesus was a dismal failure at beating out the Romans. And those who were waiting, the zealots who were waiting for him to come and do that, they looked on his life and said, that was not the Messiah we wanted. That wasn't what we were expecting. Think about the fact that Jesus came from the wrong side of town, that he was poor. You know, Jesus was so poor that he lived on others' handouts throughout his life. Have you thought about that? Have you thought about how Scripture shows that people supported Jesus everywhere he went? They paid. It was mostly women put him in their home, fed him, followed him, gave him money. Judas looked after the money. Not so well. Jesus was not a king. Isaiah tells us Jesus was not even good looking. He says he had nothing of physical, physical beauty to attract us to him. Wasn't even good looking. Not like those pictures you see of Jesus. That's Caucasian, which is also wrong. But like his beautiful flowing hair and he looks like he's just you know, an organics advert. It's not Jesus. It's not Jesus. It's true. So anyone looking in on his life, so they said, can, can the Messiah come from Nazareth? It's the wrong side of town. That's not where we find our, our next Messiah or our next religious leader. He doesn't come from Nazareth, don't you know? That's not the place. It's like East London. <laughs> to some people, Jesus didn't flourish spiritually. When the Pharisees looked on him, what were they looking at? They were saying, Jesus, you don't understand God's law. You're claiming to be the Messiah. Heretic, liar, we're going to kill you because you don't believe properly. We thought about the fact that Jesus was single. Some of you think your flourishing life is going to start when you find a partner. Jesus never found a partner. We thought about the fact that Jesus had no children. I know this is sensitive. Some of you feel like when you have children, then your life can flourish. Friends, Jesus had no children. Jesus hung out with the unflourishing crowd all the time. We just spoke about it. The sinners, the prostitutes. People looked in on the sidelines and said, is that a flourishing life? He's not even hanging out with the right people. There was a day when Jesus nearly made all his disciples leave him. Like, 
the worst leadership book you could ever read. Like he tells them, you've got to eat my flesh, you've got to drink my blood, and they're not ready for it yet, and it says most of them left him. And Jesus turns to his disciples and says, are you also going to leave? And they say, Lord, who, who, where are we going to go? To whom else shall we go? Which I kind of sometimes think whether they were thinking, you know, if there was another good option, <laughs> but, but where else can we go? In that moment, all those people who left Jesus were looking in and going, man, we followed him for a bit, but that, that's an unflourishing ministry over there. That's an unflourishing ministry. What about when Jesus died young? It's not in my plan for a flourishing life, right? 33. Stefan would have already been dead for like half a century. <laughs> what about when all of creation thought that Jesus had failed? When all of creation looked on at the death? I think even the angels, if you read scripture, there's, there's reference to even the angels being bewildered at the death of Jesus Christ. And only one, one being in the whole universe looked on that moment. Only God the Father for three days thought that someone had flourished. Everyone else was looking on and going, that was a failure. What about when Jesus established a church and the church began to stop flourishing and act? It only takes like six or seven chapters. And then it said great persecution broke out. And they started running away because people were killing them. You know? <laughs> I haven't seen too many Hollywood movies end like that. You read the Gospels and then you go and you read the, the epistles and you find out that there's huge sinfulness in the church. Huge infighting in the church. Today, in 2023, Jesus is still not flourishing in the minds of most people around the world. Most people say, oh, we'll accept that he's a good teacher, or we'll accept this, or whatever it might be. But friends, there's a season coming where we're going to more than ever find ourselves at odds with the culture, where the culture looks at us and doesn't just say we disagree, they're going to say that we are homophobic, that we are this, that we are that, that we are this. We are bigoted. The church is still not flourishing in many people's minds. And many people's, Jesus is still not flourishing in many people's minds. Many people look in on the church and go, well, why is the church such a mess? Jesus, what you built, can't, this isn't flourishing. Friends, we need a deep, deep confidence that God measures differently. That's my encouragement to you this morning. God is looking on on some of your lives and you feel like you're trying to follow Jesus. You're trying to be obedient. You're trying to be faithful with what he's given you and it still feels like you're not flourishing. I'm telling you, look into these things and you will find God measures you with a different tape. We need to have a strong confidence in our hearts that we can live our whole lives with the world considering us an unflourishing mess and God looking and going, that's my boy. That's my girl. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into your rest. Those are the words I want to hear. I, I love you guys, and I love your affirmations, and I love where some of you tell me that was a wonderful preach, or that was great, or whatever it might be. But it's, it's like nothing compared to what I want to hear my father say. Well done, Paul. I'm proud. When I drive home today, I don't ask how did people in the congregation think I did. I want to hear God say, I spoke, you listened, you tried your best, well done boy. That's what I want to hear.
Be encouraged, Christians. God exalted Jesus to the right hand, the unflourishing one, the one who the world looked at and said he didn't flourish. God looked at him and said, he's the flourisher of all flourishes. Come sit at my right hand. Come stand up next to me. I want the whole world to see you and to exalt you. And I go, Jesus, I like that. I like that. Be encouraged, Christians. And then if you do not know Jesus today, I'm going to give you a moment in a second. We're going to close our eyes because it's respectful, not because it's any super spiritual thing that happens. But we're going to close our eyes and I'm going to give you a moment to say, Lord, I have been trying so hard. And today this guy tells me that I can stop trying and actually I can throw my trust into you because you came for right where I am. And if that's you, today's a moment that you can say yes to Jesus. And then we're going to take communion together, which is a remembering of this life of Jesus. We remember the life of Jesus. We remember what he's done. And we say thank you. So let's do that as we close. So why don't you close your eyes. Father, I want to just lift up every heart in this room. I'm saying difficult things, challenging things, nice things, just a whole big uh, mix of things, Lord. And I just ask that you'd come and so deeply encourage our hearts with your word this morning. Take some of the little thoughts that I've thrown out and some of the things I felt you speaking to me this week and would they burn like little lights in people's head in the weeks to come, in the months to come, in the years to come as you redefine us, as you show us that you, you loved us right in our sinfulness right in our brokenness, Lord. And from that place, we can love others. We can respond. We can be whole. We can, we can begin to let you change the measures of how we have even confidence in ourselves because we can see that you don't measure in the same way. Father, this morning, I want to ask, and I want to ask you if you're here, if you don't know Jesus, but something of this message challenges you, you don't even know all the details or maybe you don't know very much scripture or whatever it is, but in your heart right now, you can feel a response that says, I want to say yes to this Jesus, this one who loved me when I was in my sin. If that's you, won't you just raise a hand? It's only me that's looking and I want to just pray with you. Thank you so much. there anybody else this morning I'm not going to embarrass you I'm not going to ask you to come to the front thank you Jesus you know if we had brought someone in in a wheelchair or something this morning and you'd seen that people that you'd seen that person stand up I think we'd go out and we'd be so excited about that moment and I'm not diminishing that moment in any way shape or form but I want to tell you when one person lifts a hand in a moment like this it's a greater thing it's a greater miracle than the person who will be raised from the dead in a wheelchair whatever it is it's a greater miracle when one comes to know Jesus and so I want to pray with you just that I just saw one hand I don't know if there's anyone else but just with you I want to pray in this prayer just you can say it under your breath with me, Lord Jesus. Thank you that while I was still sinning, you died for me. I trust you with my heart. I trust you with my life. I believe that the only way out of this is you. And I commit my life to you today to follow you, 
to let you change me, to let you purify me right now. In Jesus' name. Can we just celebrate that moment together as a body of believers and just welcome someone new into God's kingdom? Amen. Friends, let's take communion together. I want to encourage those who responded in person or in their hearts. Won't you find a friend? Won't you find someone and tell them what Jesus has done in your heart so that they can start walking that journey with you? Amen. Sorry I kept you a bit long this morning. Communion together with your friends or family and be blessed and have some water apparently. Love you guys. <laughs>